24th day of the 11th month, which is the month of Shabbat, in the second year of Darius, the word of the Lord came to the prophet Zechariah, the son of Berechiah, son of Iddo, saying, I saw in the night, and behold, a man riding on a red horse. He was standing among the myrtle trees in the glen, and behind him were red, sorrel, and white horses. Then I said, What are these, my Lord? The angel who talked with me said to me, I will show you what they are. So the man who was standing among the myrtle trees answered, These are they whom the Lord has sent to patrol the earth. And they answered the angel of the Lord who was standing among the myrtle trees and said, We have patrolled the earth. And behold, all the earth remains at rest. Then the angel of the Lord said, O Lord of hosts, how long will you have no mercy on Jerusalem and the cities of Judah, against which you have been angry these seventy years? And the Lord answered gracious and comforting words to the angel who talked with me. So the angel who talked with me said to me, Cry out, thus says the Lord of hosts, I am exceedingly jealous for Jerusalem and for Zion. And I am exceedingly angry with the nations that are at ease. For while I was angry, but a little, they furthered the disaster. Therefore, thus says the Lord, I have returned to Jerusalem with mercy. My house shall be built in it, declares the Lord of hosts, and the measuring line shall be stretched out over Jerusalem. Cry out again, thus says the Lord of hosts, my cities shall again overflow with prosperity. And the Lord will again comfort Zion and again choose Jerusalem. This is the word of the Lord. So each week at our office, our staff opens the week with a staff meeting. And it's our pattern to open that with a word of devotion and we alternate. various staff members presenting something the Lord has just blessed them with in their own devotional life. This week, uh, as we started out the week, Jerry was providing the the devotion and and she was reading to us uh, about God's love from a book by J.I. Packer, Knowing God. She She read this quote, God's love is an exercise of His goodness towards individual sinners. It is not a vague, diffused goodwill towards everyone in general and nobody in particular. And then my paraphrase, rather as a function of His being, His love is directed towards a particular people in a particular way. I heard these words and I asked her to stop. Do me a favor, read that again. I, it, it was almost too meaty for me to capture in one moment, but something in my heart said, I need to hear that again. Something resonated because I heard in this quote what my heart knew, but also hoped was true. That God's loving kindness is not just a general loving kindness, but God loves His people. Now, why did I need to hear that message? And maybe, why do you? Do you look around at 
the state of this world, the state of this notion, and take some comfort in the fact that God is loving, but know in your heart that you need more than a general loving. You need a very particular, very specific love from this loving God. That's how my week started. And then I began to dive into this text. And I began to realize that that is the message of this passage. That God is a God of love for His people. He'll share this message through a comforting vision of a horseman. Now, as we explore this vision, it it might be helpful for us to to gain some understanding of of visions in Scripture. It's it's sort of a new genre for us, and we need to see what in the world's going on here uh, to understand the purpose of, of visions, particularly apocalyptic visions in Scripture. We're reading from a prophet, the prophet Zechariah, and in the prophet's uh, they are offering the prophetic, prophetic word calling sinful people to repent. And we heard that last week as we opened up the book of Zechariah, and that is the theme in all of the prophets. But in Scripture, when the Lord offers visions, particularly these apocalyptic visions, more than a message calling a sinful people to repent, the Lord is giving a vision to a discouraged and downtrodden people meant to offer hope. That's the context of this vision. It's a vision to a discouraged and downtrodden people meant to offer hope. And in these visions, they will often give a heavenly perspective on an earthly event. And through it, pointing to the sovereignty, the majesty of God. So how is this vision meant to point to God's sovereignty and to comfort God's people? Well, let's let's look at this vision. It opens uh, with a battle scene. Did you you capture that? Zechariah is given this vision of, of a man riding a red horse. And behind him are a group of other horses. This is a picture of the cavalry. In biblical times, the horses were used for military purposes, and the cavalry was meant as a show of strength for the king. Part of the description of the mighty kings of old is the size of their cavalry. And so we open here with this picture of a battle scene, but it also has a setting that is full of intrigue and maybe a sense of foreboding because the man riding the red horse is is tucked away among the myrtle trees. There are these evergreen trees in and around Jerusalem that would have provided an element of of shade and, and cover in the night set in the valley, maybe the the Kidron Valley. That is the setting that we enter into. But we learn that in this battle scene, the man on the red horse is more than merely a man. The passage tells us 
that in verse 11, this man is the angel of the Lord. Now, though Zechariah has as a guide another angel, interpreting for him, if you will, this man on the red horse, this angel of the Lord, will become the central figure in this unfolding drama, this unfolding vision. As we begin to hear the conversation, we realize that this battle scene uh, is the result of a recon mission. (laughs) The angel of the Lord has sent the cavalry out to patrol the earth. And now they are coming back to report to Him their findings. Now, when I read this passage to you a few minutes ago, maybe as you read along with me, and you heard the beginning of their report, what did did you think? As they spoke of the earth remaining at rest. We hear that and we think, peace. We hear the earth is at rest. Hey, that's a good thing. But did you notice that the angel of the Lord did not respond to this rest favorably? Why is that? Because the angelic host, the angel armies, they're not concerned with the world in general. The angelic hosts are concerned very specifically with the people of God. And so this rest that the world is experiencing, this peace that the world is experiencing is happening, is occurring at the very same time that the people of God are struggling. We heard it last week as we talked about the discouragement that the people experienced in a time of financial, political, social unrest. They were there to rebuild the city. And in their rebuilding, they were experiencing opposition. Sometimes, as we read Nehemiah, that opposition was from external sources, and sometimes it was from their own internal unrest. And so, with that contrast, the fact that the nations were at rest tells us that their rest was a neglectful rest. The world is standing idly by while the people of God are struggling. And the angel of the Lord heard this report. Again, a picture of a heavenly reality over an earthly event. This angel of the Lord heard this report and could not fathom a world at peace, enjoying its spoils while the Lord withheld His mercy from Israel. And so He cried out in prayer. Verse 12, then the angel of the Lord said, O Lord of hosts, how long will you have no mercy on Jerusalem and the cities of Judah against which you have been angry these 70 years? The angel of the Lord is interceding on behalf of the people of the Lord. Before we get to God's response, we need to consider this prayer. When you hear this prayer, when you hear the angel of the Lord crying out, How long, O Lord? What's your first response? Does that make you feel a little bit uncomfortable? To hear that almost challenge of the Lord? Well, let's understand 
that what the angel of the Lord is doing is the angel of the Lord is praying God's word back to him. If we would look to Jeremiah chapter 25, verse 11, we would see that God prophesied that the land would lay in waste for 70 years. The angel of the Lord knows the word of the Lord. And rooted in the, Lord, the word of the Lord, the angel is praying that word back to the Lord, calling on him to fulfill his prophetic promise. It's a model for us in our prayers. That if we are to pray to the God whom we are called to live in a relationship with, we are to know His Word. That our prayers have power and strength because we pray back to the Lord His Word. But In addition to the angel modeling, uh, uh, praying the Word, uh, the angel is modeling a certain rawness in prayer. This prayer is real. This prayer is raw. Are yours? When you pray, is it a cry out to the Lord? Or is your prayer a light, fluffy, maybe even rote, memorized phrase? The angel is telling us, is showing us rather, that prayer to Almighty God is rooted in relationship and saturated in the Word, because we are praying to our God. And as we pray to our God, we pray to Him by clinging to Him and His Word. The angel models this for us, because this entire vision is meant to be a show of strength, to comfort a people who at the time did not feel strong at all. But more than simply a comforting vision, this text gives us comforting words. Comforting words from the Lord of hosts. How beautiful is it that in response to this prayer, the Lord is not put off at all. He, he in fact, responds with what the text tells us are gracious and comforting words. How beautiful is that? Consider the recipients of this word for a moment. They were God's people who had been in exile. They're returning now to the chosen land. And maybe in that time of exile, surrounded by the Babylonian people, distanced from the place of God, maybe they had forgotten how to be God's people. Maybe in exile those many years, they had forgotten how to worship as God's people. Did you ever feel this way? Do you ever experience your own version of exile? Maybe it is a self-imposed exile. For whatever reason that we seem so quickly to justify in our own minds, we distance, our, our, we distance ourselves from the people of God. Have you experienced this form of Exile, and when you do, do you forget? Do you forget how to live as a child of God? 
Many of us have experienced that. Some small way, we as God's people have been exiled for a season from our corporate gathering of worship. And in that exile, have we forgotten how to worship God as a body, as a people. The Lord is giving gracious and comforting words to the people of Jerusalem through the prophet Zechariah, but He's also giving those gracious and comforting words to us. So God calls His prophet to cry out of His love. This message is a threefold message and it's marked by the threefold thus says the Lord. So let's, to, let's take a look at this threefold message. First, we hear a message of God's fierce and targeted love. Listen again to the first words that we come to in, this, uh, in, in these gracious and comforting words that the Lord speaks through Zechariah in verses 14 and 15. So the angel who talked with me said to me, Cry out, thus says the Lord of hosts, I am exceedingly jealous for Jerusalem and for Zion, and I am exceedingly angry with the nations that are at ease. For while I was angry but a little, they furthered the disaster. This is covenantal language. This is the language of connected, committed relationship. Do you remember what I said in the beginning about that quote that struck me at the first of this week? It struck me because I heard in it my God declaring His love for me. And it gripped me. This message that God speaks through Zechariah he speaks with covenantal, committed language. It's not a vague love for everyone in general and no one specific. God is speaking to His people. A people then and now whom He had chosen and loved from before the beginning of time. And literally, when it says exceedingly jealous, He's speaking of being jealous with great jealousy. For Jerusalem and for Zion. He's not talking geography here. This is not merely a jealousy for the city. It is for the people of the city. And as we understand the movement of God's Word, we see that throughout He has been gathering for Himself a people. A beloved people. A chosen people. That starts out through a family and becomes a nation and now in the fullness of redemptive history is the church. When God speaks of His jealousy for Jerusalem and Judah, today you need to hear His jealousy for the church of Jesus Christ. This jealousy that He speaks of, this great jealousy, it's the language of lovers. And God is telling us, His people, that He will not share us with another. Because He wants us all to Himself as the objects of His love. Imagine 
a people who had been exiled in Babylon, how much they needed this gracious comfort. How much do you need this gracious word of comfort? But understand that God's fierce love is also meant to communicate that He was exceedingly angry with the nations around Him. And understand, this anger and this jealousy must go hand in hand. Because God has seen that His beloved people have been abused by the hands of the nations. The nations had abused their role by furthering the disaster on God's people. And now they were lying in an indulgent ease. The comfort meant for God's people was also meant to communicate that the anger that had been aroused against them in their sin would now be targeted towards the nations who would feel God's wrath. Friends, you know this in your own families, that a parent will discipline a child. And there is an element of of appropriate anger communicated in that discipline but the parent will not tolerate someone from outside to come in and abuse that child. There's a difference between the discipline of a child and the anger at an offending party. That we as parents, we as people understand and that is what God is communicating here. The Lord of hosts. The Lord of angel armies will fight for His people. That's the first part of this threefold message of of love. But the second, we see in verse 16, when once again we hear, thus says the Lord. Verse 16, Therefore, thus says the Lord, I have returned to Jerusalem with mercy. My house shall be built in it, declares the Lord of hosts, and the measuring line shall be stretched out over Jerusalem. Last week, we heard the foundational call. In Zechariah, was this foundational call to, to return. And we defined that returning as a relational returning to the Lord, whereby the Lord promised that He, too, would relationally return to us. But here, in this text, the Lord is saying, I have returned. I've returned. To Jerusalem, I have returned to you, my people. It's a promise of His presence. That would come through the rebuilding of His house, the temple, but it would be manifested beyond that as the measuring line would be stretched out across Jerusalem. This mention of the measuring line is is an image that we see throughout Scripture. In the book of Lamentations, written to uh, lament over the destruction of Jerusalem at the hands of the Babylonians, the word of the Lord said that the measuring line then, in that day, in Lamentations 2.8, was an instrument of destruction. Yet here, in the return, God is saying that the measuring line now is an instrument of restoration. We will see that throughout Scripture culminating gloriously in Revelation 21.15 when the measuring line then is the golden measuring rod 
stretched out over the city, the new Jerusalem, and the new heavens, and the new earth. God is saying that He has returned. That He will rebuild. We see it throughout Scripture and we'll see it with greater clarity and glory. It's a comforting word of restoration that leads to, in verse 17, this promise of prosperity and comfort. The, the third of the threefold, thus says the Lord. In verse 17, cry out again, thus says the Lord of hosts. My cities shall again overflow with prosperity and the Lord will again comfort Zion and again choose Jerusalem. This third message is connected to the second. It's a message of prosperity and comfort, but that prosperity we need to hear is first and foremost a promise of presence. The the nations then and now define prosperity in a self-indulgent way. A self-centered way. Way limited to material prosperity. It is the temp- it was the temptation of the nations then. It is the temptation of the nations now, and sadly, many of us in the church have bought into these deceitful ways. Because telling us in His Word that His people will find the ultimate gift of prosperity in His presence. Yet we can't deny that His spiritual presence also leads to physical fruitfulness. As God's people grow into their gifting, as God's people begin to care and nurture others in their place, both in the church and without, the people of the place and the place itself begins to become more beautiful. Friends, God works in and through His people to bear fruit in the garden in which He has placed them. And when we speak in our vision statement of being a people who are joining in His work of redemption so that all things begin to reflect the goodness, truth, and beauty of our triune God, that is what we're talking about. We're talking about His spiritual presence manifesting itself outwardly in physical fruitfulness. That's what this prosperity means. His presence and the betterment of the place. So let's understand that now and try and apply it to our day and time. The prophets in Scripture spoke into a particular moment. But that message is applicable for the people of God in all times and in all settings. So where do you feel the temptation towards discouragement? We read in our confession from Psalm 73 where the psalmist honestly, vulnerably confessed his temptation to look around him non-believers, and see their prosperity and to question the goodness of God. Where do you feel this temptation? Where do you feel the temptation to measure God's goodness and kindness to you based on what is happening in the world around you? At their level of prosperity. 
All of us from time to time fall to this temptation, but when we do, we must learn to recognize the tempter. It is, it is a temptation as old as time. In the garden, Satan deceived Adam and Eve by convincing them that God was holding out on them. That there was something better out there. But just as that message, old as time, was false in the garden, it is false now. As we consider this text, at least part of our application is this call to not be deceived by what we see in the world around us. To not measure God's love and goodness for us based on our position relative to others. So he sent Zechariah to offer this gracious and comforting word of his intentional love and care for his covenant people. But those comforting words also offer for us an admonition. Set your hope on the Lord and not on the ways of the world. God gave Zechariah this visit, this vision to encourage his people with hope. And as we explore the Old Testament and the prophets, we need to sit in that moment to explore the Word, but we also need to understand the fulfillment of that Word and that moment. Because in the fullness of time, this vision that was pointing to His love was fulfilled in the person of Jesus Christ. The Hebrew word for God with us. The promise of this text, that Hebrew word is Emmanuel. And in John chapter 1, verse 14, we read God's word fulfilling that promise. Because the word, Jesus, became incarnate. The word put on flesh and dwelt among us God's people. And in the Word, we have seen the fullness of God's glory. Glory full of grace and truth. This promise that God makes through the prophet Zechariah is ultimately fulfilled in the person of Jesus as a manifestation of God's fierce loyalty to His covenant people. That He would send His Son to take on flesh that He might take on the wrath of God by reconciling His beloved to Himself. It's a particular love for a particular people, and we need to hear that message today. As a close, can I, can I paint a picture for you to try and imagine a scene, a scene that might drive home this message of particular love? Imagine it's a beautiful day, and on the mall and Trustful, there are families all over gathering to enjoy a picnic. Individuals congregating, laughing, enjoying the day. Yet you as a parent are standing off from the scene and looking into the middle 
of this gathering, and there's your child. Your child is trying to set up a picnic to enjoy. But your child is struggling to, to open up the chairs. Your child is struggling to open up the table. They've wandered into an ant bed and being stung. Ants, bees swarming around. You as a parent are looking on at the pain of your child and the people around are sitting in ease looking, seeing, ignoring, minding their own business. Imagine the anger that dwells up within you as you consider your deep love for your child. You understand in that scene a particular love, not for all, but for your people. Now know that in that scene, you are the child. God is the better Father. Many of us can relate as parents, but we need to know as children that our God is not just generally loving, but He loves His own with a covenantal love. And in His Word, He's telling the people of Jerusalem and the people of today, don't look longingly to the nations. Look upon Christ and find peace and hope in Him. Let us pray. Father, we thank You for this message of love for us, Your people. And I pray that if there be any here this day who who hear this message but have not yet placed their trust in You, that they they would desire this love. They would call upon You. Do it, we pray, Father, in Christ's name. Amen.